into the family business, which interestingly enough for a Quaker family uh, was the uh, 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 selling wine. Uh, so they, of course, were completely teetotal, and they made a fortune making uh, other citizens in, in Upton uh, uh, as alcoholic as they could. Anyhow, he was a, he was a wealthy man and completely self-taught. Left school when he was 14, as I said, and he became interested in optics, of all things. And uh, uh, Jackson Lister uh, uh, modified the, mic the microscope and produced what's called the achromatic microscope.
uh, and Lister's uh, was let's go on infirmary. Filthy then, I'm not sure it's much better today, but don't, don't quote me on that. And you can see here was Lister's male ward, and there was Lister's female ward. Now, Lister was used to infected wounds, but when he got into the Glasgow Royal Infirmary, as he went in through the door, the stench hit him, and the sepsis rate in the Glasgow Royal Infirmary was absolutely terrible. And one of the first things Lister did was to get out this big thing of Nine out of ten. Surgeons for hundreds of years. This observation two people are brought into casualty. Road traffic accident. They both broke in their feet. That's the One took a bad cut in his hand, and it could have seen the another might be a possible candidate for Greek numbers while the bone slowly I told you, Glasgow Royal Infirmary, you had a nine chances out of ten your leg was going to come off, and you had thing is, we're here to surgeons with the Hunter Museum. Uh, John Hunter, who died just at the end of the 18th century, so it's 50 years before we're talking about this, uh, 60 years before we're talking about this, Hunter said, it's nonsense about air getting into the wound and producing infection. Because uh, a lot of you will know that you'll see patients who've got fractures of the ribs. And if the rib penetrates the pleural cavity or punctures the lung, air inside the lung comes emphysema. You can feel bubbles of, of air under the skin.
But there were no photographs in that day. What did they actually look at? We can describe them, but can I picture them? Well, we're very lucky. This is a Scots. to the Middlesex, he produced what we think are wonderful pictures, which you can see today. Uh, they've been published. Uh, many of them you'll see if you go to Edinburgh in the, in the um, library at the uh, museum at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, at, uh, uh, sorry, the, at the Edinburgh College Surgeons. He, he had these remarkable drawings. And here's the patient, you see, the, here, the chap's arm's been blown off, and the wound gets terribly septic, goes gangrenous. The patient looks as ill as could be. I mean, here's the chance. You know, this chap's got a, a say, 50% chance of dying of his, of his injury. They became terribly toxic. The wounds looked absolutely awful. The wounds smelt to high heaven. Here's a chap with a compound fracture of the skull. Terribly ill, septic as can be, uh, probably dying. Uh, the whole of his skull swollen up with, with uh, dead and infected material, with the bone showing through there. Awful picture. Things which you'd never see, thank goodness. Uh, thank goodness for the National Health Service. You won't see this today uh, in our wards. And of course, many, many cases of tetanus. Now, this is uh, an extraordinary picture showing a patient with tetanus, of which there were many examples uh, uh, in, uh, lying around the hospitals in in, uh, in, uh, in Brussels. And now, of course, we know that the reason for this is that bacteria get into the, into the wound and the wound becomes infected. And particularly in wartime injuries, because the tissues are smashed to smithereens and uh, their blood supply is cut off, uh, there's an organism, of organisms called Clostridia, uh, which can only live, they're present in Earth, Cases that, that this young professor of surgery was seeing uh, in Glasgow. Now, uh, 
What is very interesting is this, that uh, the wonderful thing about working in the university, and I'm very lucky in that I've worked at, uh, at four universities now, is this wonderful... his microscope. Take the plug out, organisms get in, and the milk or the urine or the wine go mouldy. So Anderson said, uh, 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 Lister, of course, who was absolutely fluent in French and German, but being a surgeon, read the medical journals, didn't read, didn't read the chemical journals. When he read Pasteur's papers, the, the penny dropped. Pasteur himself said, Discoveries are made by the receptive mind, the mind that's there ready to receive ideas. And you see, Lister said, this is it, kids. This is what I saw when I was a house surgeon with Ericsson. I saw them. I saw them. I saw them. The pendrive. It all fits together. You see? It isn't, it isn't air getting into the wound that makes the wound go septic. It's the bacteria in the air that makes the wound go septic. So Lister, with his receptive mind, prepared mind, was absolutely ready to introduce the bacterial origin of infected wounds. There's Pasteur, probably the greatest bacteriologist that's ever lived. His only rival would, would be uh, uh, Koch in uh, Berlin. I, I put my money on Pasteur myself. Remarkable. Now, what's so interesting is, you see, these are notes from a medical student, notes taken by W.S. Anderson, one of Lister's students at Glasgow, uh, describes experiment in support of the antiseptic principle. So here's Lister, lecturing to the students at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary, lectures on surgery, and instead of telling them how to classify piles, which is what they're going to need for the exam, you see, or the differential diagnosis of a lump in the popliteal fossa, which they need to know for the exam. He was Lister, talking to them about boiling milk and urine and wine and putting a cork into it, and it remains, it remains, it remains, uh, you see, it may remain for 20 years, remaining perfectly sweet because of the air, etc., etc. Lister was a, Lister was a good was a good Essex boy, 
But you see, he spent a lot of his professional life in Scotland. And if you, if you live and work in Scotland, and I spent some time working in Edinburgh, uh, it, 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 it's contaminating. So Lister had the sort of canny way of being very economical that you learn from our Scottish brethren, apart from people like Brown, of course. This isn't a part drawing. A, a bluish mould, you see. And he sent it to some of his mycology friends, and they identified this as, a, as, a, uh, as an organism called Penicillium the organisms that are getting into the wine. Well, he read in the newspapers that the drains in and uh, that they'd found that if you pour uh, crude carbolic down the drains, the smell disappears. And Lister said the drains in Durham can't smell any worse than my wall. Carbolic, it's not good. 
this place to be written uh, in, on, the, on the entries of every operating theatre in the UK. Sort of all the stations as well. David Scott, James Greenleaf, age 11, little boy, by a, a wagon in the streets of Glasgow,
I didn't do when I was in Westminster. I didn't allow my staff to do. He went on holiday. This was before the European Work Directive. <laughs> he went on holiday, for God's sake. As soon as the old man was out of the room, he said, oh, for God, all this carbolic, you know, let's get the germaline out or whatever they were using. Lister came back from his holiday. The poor chap had got a gangrenous leg, had to cut the leg off. Every hero has got a flaw. When I read that Lister went on holiday, I said, you shouldn't have done that. Last time we went on holiday. So there, you see, there are the cases. Till we come to this chap, hmm? uh, 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 a man uh, uh, injured, he was a quarry man, and a great mass of rock dropped on his leg, smashed up femur. And he was doing very well indeed. He was doing very well indeed. And then reading the, the protocol, after two or three weeks had passed, the wound was healing up nicely. Obviously, a fragment of of the he obviously had a comminuted fracture with slivers of bone in the wound, went through his femoral artery, and he started gushing arterial blood out of the ward. The house surgeon rushed down, put his thumb on the wound, stopped the bleeding. Lister came in, tied the femoral artery, stopped the bleeding. Now, reading through the protocol, if it had been today, if they'd known about blood transfusion, if they'd, give, if they'd had a pint of blood to give the chap, He'd have recovered. But of course, in those days, there was no, there was no transfusion. Hmm? And he died of exsanguination. Shame. Recovery, 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 recovery. So do you see 11 cases, one amputation, one death from hemorrhage, non-infected. Uh, now, I, years ago, I actually... Uh, of course, 11 is a small group of cases. I actually got our hospital statistician to work out the statistics of that, compared with Lister's trial of 90% amputation, 50% um, uh, uh, death, and it comes to P0001 for statisticians. What was it like to be operated? It was very simple. Uh, Lister would uh, spray the
this was the first case that it did. Uh, this is a patient with a fracture of the electron. Those who are knocked on this bone here. And of course, if that bone is damaged, So this was quite a late fracture in a man who couldn't use his own. Antiseptic regime that I've told you about, you see? Drilled a hole through that bit of bone, drilled a hole through that bit of bone, put a wire through, you see? Wired it together. You mustn't do it. You mustn't do it. You, you can. You can. I've done it. He then, and there's a, there's a specimen up in the in the museum. Shows it in the print. Shows them in the literature. He, he, he did the same thing to fracture the kneecap. He could turn it. Tell us fracture. The bone bit come apart. The tachylosis is ruined. And what he did was, as you can see, made over his kneecap, pulled the ends together, put a wire around. It's a specimen in the in the in the museum. People said, you mustn't do it. I said, yes, you can. So he's the father of modern orthopedics. Remarkable. This is a bit of fun. These are a bunch of medical students replicating uh, a, a Listerian operation. Of course, I should
so they introduced Dressings to go around the wound, drapes around the wound. They used boiled gowns to put their gowns on. They used a technique rather, rather, rather similar to the surgery we know today. So here's a picture taken about 1890. You see what they've done. They'll do the anaesthetic, of course. Uh, uh, they've got bare arms. They would have scrubbed their hands to sterilize them. Uh, they'd have worn sterile gowns. They'd have had sterile, instead of soaking them in carbolic, they would boil them and then autoclave them to sterilize the dressings. So they'd start using what was called aseptic surgery. A little later, this is in London, guys, uh, again, see the surgeons have rolled up their sleeves. They've, they've used... They've scrubbed their hands, use sterile drapes, steam sterilization. When I was a young surgeon, who said to us, you're not a surgeon until you've taken out an appendix on a kitchen table by candlelight. <laughs> Is there any questions? I said, I haven't done that, sir but I've done a Ramstead's operation on a baby with pyloric stenosis in a bathroom by angle poise. Of course now, from her fingertips up to her. I can't, it's absolutely, every time I stick my hand in those bowls of iodide and mercury, I scream with pain. I'm stopping as from today. Well, you can ask any surgery, it doesn't matter 
about who his anaesthetist is or who his assistants are or anything else. It's his theatre sister that the important one. Any theatre sisters here? They're the, they're, they used to be the gold. They probably still are. So he was very upset. I'm going to lose his theatre sister. So often, if it was a delicate operation, they'd say, what the hell is, I've got to take my gloves off. You know, I can't, I can't feel enough. But it was improved, and the gloves we wear today, you hardly know you've got anything on your hand. So those were the, it's a, interesting, those were the, the, the original gloves that looked like that. And it spread by word of mouth, people said. Like, do you see, they weren't using gloves to protect the patient from their bacteria. They were using their gloves to protect the poor surgeon's hands from the antiseptics. Interesting. It's gone full circle now because the first aid workers and the ambulance men are using their glo gloves, not for the patient's point of view, to protect themselves from getting infected, HIV and hep hepatitis and so on, from, their, from the customer. So, in fact, the extraordinary thing is it wasn't. It was this extraordinary man who was an Werner von Mantufel, the very first publication. Nobody, this just spread all over the world. People said, don't make your hands get sore. You know, go along to the other company. Gloves. You see? And it was this chapter. The first publication in German uh, was 1897. Long after Lister, of course, had retired. So Lister never wore a pair of gloves in the operating theatre. And he wrote in German, to wear boiled rubber gloves is to have boiled hands. Very Germanic. And so there are the gloves today. Well, there you are. There's Lister. It wasn't for him. I
generals and admirals who killed thousands and thousands of people. There were two is in Portland Place to list. It's a lovely statue, and go and have a look at it. It's just north of the BBC, and it's Any questions? It's still changing today. Uh, you see a whole range of um, of antiseptic individuals. Carbolic are a nasty smell. Uh, and it is very, very irritant. It's irritant to the patient's skin, it's irritant to the surgeon's skin, so people didn't like the use of it. And all sorts of things were used. Benidide of mercury, iodine. I was, I was brought up to use iodine. It's jolly good stuff. It's, uh, some people are sensitive to it. You have to ask the patient if he's iodine sensitive. You have to do a little patch test. And so on and so forth. So if you go into so many hospitals, you'll see different surgeons using different things. Um, Citavlon is now a very popular sort of, sort of soapy thing. If you've got nothing else, soap and water. If you scrub your hands up with soap, you'll clean them. If you scrub up the, the skin with soap, you can do it. So, in, you know, if you're working on the most primitive condition, if you've got a bar of soap, you can do, uh, you can do adequate surgery. No, they didn't. Uh, they German. Uh, Semmelweis was an interesting story, which you all know. Semmelweis, of course, was the man who, among others, among others, among many others, who put together the fact that uh, childbed fever uh, was an infectious process, hmm? that the... the the obstetrician would go to a woman in labor, having just come, let's say, from doing a post-mortem, and the contagion on his hands would infect the woman's birth passages. And it was Semmelweis, among others, who put two and two together. Uh, the trouble with Semmelweis was that he, he must have been a difficult guy. Uh, he, he wrote extensively on the subject. I've read translation of some of his works, very dense very difficult to understand, whereas Lister was a brilliant speaker, and a brilliant, if you read those articles in The Lancet, they're, they're, they're beautiful. You can really follow every word that he's saying. So that was a pity. And uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Semmelweis died, he went mad in the end, he died in a lunatic asylum of, of, of he, he pricked himself and he died of blood poisoning. And he died in 1865, which was when must be about the time when, when Lister was operating on James Greenlees. What a, what a sad coincidence. I don't know that they ever heard of it. Perhaps in late stages, people would have said, what about Semmelweis to Lister? This is our poor chap, you know. If only, if only he hadn't been a mad Hungarian.
Yes, sir. That's interesting because, of course, people did people were well aware of cross infection, and of course, uh, Florence Nightingale herself, before Lister, was saying how important it was to have plenty of of, uh, of space between the beds, uh, cleanliness, ventilation, and wrote extensively about that. Not only, of course, from uh, infection from one patient to the other, but of course, she was talking about infection among soldiers. Uh, cooped together in the same barracks under insanitary uh, conditions. Uh, so efforts were made to do that, and it was very the, the, the greater the chance of cross infection. And the idea of isolating infected wounds, it all came in very quickly with that. And the other question was hemorrhage. Well, this was the trouble. They were very uh, good at stopping hemorrhage. Um, they knew all about it. They all knew about direct pressure. They knew about tourniquets. They knew about tying off the bleeding vessel. It was all worked out. But they hadn't got transfusion. And in the First World War, uh, a chap called Geoffrey Keynes, who was a young surgeon from Barts, who went off into the army, and he was a remarkable chap because he knew, he'd learned how to cross-match blood. And he describes that at the end of a long operating list in the casualty clearing station just behind the arm, it, uh, behind the front, he would go in to the dying ward. There was a ward like this with stretches all the way down there hmm, with patients that had been triaged. He said, this guy's going to die. Hmm? No point in operating on this one. You see, and he'd go down this thing and he'd find one chap and he'd say, the reason why this chap looks as if he's going to die is he's, he's had a bullet through his leg. He's bleeding stopped, but he's exsanguinated. And he'd take this chap back to theatre, he would get one of the um, uh, patients, convalescent patients, uh, to volunteer to be a uh, donor. Uh, the deal was that you get two weeks leave if you, if you have your blood taken. So it's very popular. And, and he learnt how to group blood, which was something that Landstein had invented about 1909. And he'd give, he'd give this apparently moribund patient, pint of blood. Healthy young chap of 18 with his leg blown off. Okay, there we go. Providing circulatory support. So of course, the answer is you've got to stop the bleeding, but the patient will still die if he's, if he's got no blood circulation. So it, it took an, another Nobel Prize man, Landstein, uh, to work out the um, actual uh, uh, blood group. Uh, interesting enough, it was a gynecologist at uh, at um,
under chloroform anesthesia. And it was the first time a sterile drain was used. He soaked a bit of rubber tubing in carbolic and put it to a drain. And when the queen woke up after the anesthetic, she said, come on, a most unpleasant task, Lord Lister, most pleasantly performed. <laughs> None of my patients ever said that to me. <laughs> Only Queen Victoria. Can I go home now? Yes.